Well, um, last week uh, we began a message uh, called Cleaning the Cup, uh, Goals for 2023, and we were talking about um, two key scriptures, one in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, uh, chapter 2, verse 10, which says that we are God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to do the good works that he's prepared in advance for us to do. And uh, uh, the, the point and emphasis being it's so important we understand our identity and who God says we are first before we engage and we get things out of order and the things that we're called to do. And how often when we start off our year, we can end up going about trying to achieve all these goals and actually find ourselves like the person who starts climbing the ladder of achievement only to find out that we've been climbing the wrong wall. And that if we don't understand who it is that God says we are and what he's inviting us into, then we won't be able to make discernment and decisions on what those goals and those priorities should be in our life. But if we understand who we are and who God's inviting us to be, that sets the framework for what our goals or our priorities look like in 2023. And we were talking about Matthew chapter 23, where Jesus gets really tough with his critics. And in this case, the Pharisees who are attacking and challenging him. And he's basically pointing out their religious hypocrisy. And he says to them in Matthew 23, Woe to you, teachers of the law and you Pharisees, you're hypocrites. In other words, you're actors. Uh, you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but the inside are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will also be clean. And this week, Stephen Jeff sent me a photo, because we, we were talking about the two different cups we had last week, and um, we had someone in our congregation come up and choose one of those cups, and she rejected the cup that was filthy on the inside for the cup that was clean on the inside. And so uh, Stephen sent me a photo in his work office of the communal kitchen, and he went to get a cup, and he went, aha, and he took the photo of the cup that had all the stains on the inside of the cup. And it was a great moment where I actually thought, finally, Stephen Jess is listening to me when I'm preaching. <laughs> That's pretty cool. But the whole point was to say, let's make sure that we don't spend our effort and our energy on goals that are just about cleaning the outside of the cup, but that we actually do the deep inside work where we allow God, by the power of His Spirit, to be shaped and formed in the way of Jesus so that our hearts are clean so that our lives look increasingly like Jesus. And for those of you that are good at English grammar, that have looked at the heading of the first slide that came up this morning, that says, clean the cup of faith that looks, it's supposed to say increasingly like Jesus. But it says increasing, but we'll go with that anyway. And that's what happens when you do your slides too late. So, Today, I want us to look at a particular scripture in the Gospel of Matthew, sorry, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verse 15. Uh, and we're going to look at this together, and I'm going to unpack this a little bit for us this morning, and then I've got something for us all to do. In the Gospel of Mark, which is probably one of the earliest Gospels that we have, um, there are four, three Gospels that have a very particular um, message and purpose as far as the historical um, stories and the purpose by which they're told. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then John is a really um, special uh, gospel in the sense that he's got a very 
specific theological purpose for how he constructs his Gospel of John, which is his parallel to creation and the Hebrew Scriptures and how that's being fulfilled in the life of Jesus. But we'll talk about that another time. It's just I was excited thinking about that during the week. But today, we're going to focus in on this one verse in particular, Mark chapter 1, verse 15. And it says, this is Jesus speaking, the time has come. As your parents, or as a parent, have you ever used a similar phrase on your children? Most likely when walking past their bedroom. We did it yesterday with one of our children. The time has come. <laughs> no more will this room look like a creative exploration of your entire life where it's all just dumped in the middle. The time has come. Something has to change. But Jesus comes and says, the time has come. And what does he say? The kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe the good news. What's the good news? The good news is that God is doing something new. Something is about to break in and break through, and it's the kingdom of God. Matthew calls it the kingdom of heaven. It's not about heaven out past the, the stars somewhere. He's actually talking about the realm, the domain, the reign of God that looks very different to the kingdoms of this world, completely different. It's the place where God is at work, and Jesus is declaring that finally what Israel has been longing for is about to take place. That God's kingdom is breaking forth, and that time is now. Now, I want to unpack a few words here for a few moments. Um, when it says the time, the word time has come, there are two Greek words that are often used in Scripture, and we use these words, but we just don't realize that we're often using these words. And the first word that you may be familiar with is Greek word chronos. Chronos is a type of time, and it's the kind of time that you might say is wristwatch time. In other words, it's chronological or sequential. So um, if I say to you, what time is it? You may say, it's 10.48 a.m. And when I use that word time, I'm using the word chronos, because we're referring to a particular sequential phrase. But the word that Jesus uses here is not chronos. He doesn't say the time being 9.48 in the morning in Israel. And when he said it, his disciples didn't go, oh, hang on a sec, let's stick a, a stick in the ground and work out where the sun is, like a sundial, and work out what time of the day Jesus is speaking about. This is not the context. He uses a word which is kairos. The word kairos is, refers to a form of time which is more like an event, a moment, an opportunity. And so when he says the time has come, he's saying something significant is happening. This is an event. Now, examples of what this might be like is if I said to you, um, hey, tell me about when you were married. And it would be really weird 
If I said, tell me about the time you were married, if you said, well, it was 11.15 a.m., and we were at the Anglican Church, and uh, Reverend Hall was going to marry us at 11.45 a.m., and you started talking about this, I'd be just going, are you serious? And if your spouse was sitting next to you as you started to unpack the time, you might not be married for much longer after that. Um, and so that's, that would be very weird. But if I said to you, tell me about the time, you would say, oh, it was the best day of my life. Oh, it was, um, it was raining and it was ironic, but not. That's a joke if you know pop culture songs. Um, and it was a wonderful day despite that. It was, it was just excellent. And I'd go, fantastic. And I wouldn't be thinking, yeah, but what time of the day? Because it's a detail that probably isn't significant in the bigger scheme of that special event in your life. If I said to you, tell me about some significant times in your life. You might speak to the time when your children were born. You might speak to a time in your life where you had a significant moment. It could have been the day that you had an aha moment about Jesus and God's call on your life to be transformed and changed to follow Him. And you might say, I will never forget that time. But if I said to you, what time of the day was it? You'd be going, what? How's that relevant? Because these are the two different times. So Jesus says to you, the time, this kairos moment has come, and this kairos moment is the kingdom of God has come near. It's here. It's about to break into your current reality and this world. And in this context, Jesus gives two instructions. He says to the people that he's speaking to, in light of this kairos moment of the kingdom of God breaking through, I want you to repent and I want you to believe. Now, the word repent, for so many of us, can create different kinds of emotions when we hear that word. Because the word repent, in popular culture or throughout religious history, has so often been hijacked under a banner of making people feel guilty and shame for behaviors in their life that makes them feel like they can't connect to God or they can't engage with others. It's often associated without grace, without a sense of purpose or an overarching um, good story that it's placed within. And so many a preacher, many a religious person, many people in religious institutions have used this word. And for some people, this is like a, almost like a triggering word. They hear the word repent and they're like, ah. Oh, I hate that word because it's the word that gives me an emotion that makes me feel like I want to shrivel up and shrink and, 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 you know, and, and hide. But when Jesus uses the word, the Greek word is metanoia. And it literally means to change one's mind. It has nothing to do with feeling shame. What it actually is is, it's a positive call towards something good. And what it does is, when Jesus says repent, or when he uses the word, it's not that there can't be aspects of the repentance where there isn't remorse, or there isn't a sense of, oh, yes, gosh, how I've lost sight, or I've missed the mark, or I've not understood the good way. 
But it's, it's, there's hope attached to this. And when Jesus says repent, what he's saying is, disciples, followers, anyone listening, I'm asking you, I'm telling you, there's a moment, and this moment is the kingdom of God is breaking through, and I'm calling you to change your minds. The kingdoms of this worth, which is what he's paralleling this message against, are broken and messed up. And the systems and the structures of this world don't look like shalom and love and goodness and kindness. They don't look like freedom from oppression. They look like empire. They look like power structures. They look like selfishness and greed. They look like violence. They look like separation with walls, dividing up who's in and who's out. So when Jesus says the kingdom of God is here, he's inviting his disciples to change their way of thinking. You might say to do a 180 degree turn, to turn around in a different direction and to walk in a new way. And so this is the context in which he uses this word, repent. And then he says, and believe. Now, What's the difference between repenting and believing? Well, this word believe in this particular context is a Greek word, pastuiat, or some people would know it commonly referred to as uh, close, close, not pistachio. I've just forgotten how to actually pronounce it the right way. But it's the word that in Greek is used for the word faith. It comes from a very similar root word. And someone here is going to know it because it's just gone out of my mind as, I, as I'm saying it. But anyway, you can look it up because it's communal preaching and we, we work on it together and that's your, your exercise. Remember I said there's something for you to do. This is it. Go and look up what the word is. Um, but this particular word is very, is very similar to the word faith. Now, when Jesus is saying believe, he's not just saying go, uh-huh, yeah, sounds pretty cool, sounds good. You know when you're watching a documentary on TV and it's about health or fitness uh, or it's about the, you know, the, how wonderful drinking clean water is or how good breathing deeply is or how important it is to eat more plant-based uh, you know, vegetables in your diet. And you sit there and you go, yeah, I believe that. You go, uh-huh, yeah. But then if someone was to look at your life over the next month or year or 10 years and say, do, do you believe that if you eat those things that this is good for you? It's like, yes. This is not the kind of believing Jesus is talking about here. He's not talking about an intellectual acknowledgement of something that sounds right. He's actually talking about a faith, a belief that involves an action or a response. It's to trust in something and to live it by faith, to actually act upon it to be engaged in living out this new mindset. If you're going to change your mind, it's then going to result in changing your actions, changing the way that you live. So if Jesus says the words, love one another, and he's saying, I want you to repent from not loving one another. I want you to change your mind and begin to love one another. And I want you to believe these words. He's not saying acknowledge that that's a good idea and that that would generally be good for our church, our community, and our world. He's actually saying, do it. Like, change your mind and let it be part of your life. Practice it. Start to learn how to live it out. And so this is the context in which he's saying this. 
Now, this sounds a little bit like where apparently his brother, by the name of James, who wrote the book of James or the letter of James later in the New Testament, he says in James chapter 2, verses 14 to 17, he says these words, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Verse 15, Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Now, when Martin Luther, one of the leaders of the Reformation, who's responsible for a whole lot of good and challenge of the traditional church of the day's uh, dysfunctional behaviors and patterns that were corrupting the church in many ways. He did so much good. But did you know that Martin Luther didn't think that the book of James should be in the New Testament canon? Absolutely true. Look it up. Not right now. I know you all got phones. Write a note. Look it up later. But because his emphasis was around the context of salvation, that we're saved by faith and not our good deeds. And so he couldn't kind of reconcile that James was writing about how our faith should be accompanied by action. But that's because the context in which he was living at the day and age during the Reformation was this emphasis on salvation for after you die, being able to secure your place with God in heaven forever. And this was kind of like one of the focuses. What do you have to do to be accepted and saved by God? And so the framework was this big debate about, well, do you have to do all these things and engage in all these practices and give money and all of that? And so for many people in religion, they've operated off this works-orientated idea that if I do enough good things, then God will like me, love me, maybe even let me into heaven. And him and many of the reformers stood against this whole framework and went, no, it's faith, it's trusting God. It's what God has done for us that we accept and we believe. And so that's what they rallied against. But when James is speaking about here, he's not talking in the context of what do you have to do to be accepted by God, He's talking about what does it mean to live as a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to live your life every single day as a disciple of Jesus? And so his point and emphasis is if you're going to believe and you're going to change your mind and you're going to participate in the kingdom of God here and now, You've got to understand that this walking with Jesus and following Jesus is not just coming to church, hearing a message and saying, yeah, yeah, it's good stuff. I, I mostly agreed with 92% of what that guy said up the front. And then walk out and, and like, it's no different. We just go about our lives. This is meant to be a community where we come together, we wrestle, we hear the scripture, we worship our hearts out. We say, God, speak and it's for the purpose that we're transformed from the inside out. 
Do you know how much joy it brought me this morning? I almost broke down, but I held it together because I just met these people who are new to our congregation this morning. And we met in the foyer out there, and they said to me, we're practicing from last week's message, loving people. I won't say who and what the context was, but we're working, we're, we're, we're engaged in this. And I just went, oh, man, how good is that? Because what does it mean if we say, let's love one another, but the people that we're meant to love don't ever experience the love? They don't get clothes. They don't experience care and support and kindness and grace and mercy and justice. So it looks like we're meant to engage in it. But here's the challenge I was talking about last week. How do you become that person? How do you actually do the change and whose job is it? So there's been this, this, this debate throughout theological um, you know, groups throughout the history of, of the church around this word sanctification, which means to be set apart by the Holy Spirit, to allow God to set us apart and make us holy. And so people say, that's God's job, not our job. But here's the thing. If it's just all God's job, then it means most of the instructions Jesus gave us and most of Paul's teaching about how to live is irrelevant because it's not us, it's just God. So we should just come along, hang out, and just go, God, just do your thing. And then next week go, I know you told me to love my wife better, and I know you want me to love my kids better and not be that grumpy dad, and I know that I should be more gracious and kind to that guy at work who just really annoys me, but you haven't changed me yet, God. What it actually is, sanctification in the New Testament through the life of Jesus and the the writings predominantly of Paul is an invitation for us to partner with in relationship with God by the power of the Holy Spirit, in which we position ourselves where we engage in repentance, in changing our mind. Paul says in, one, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. If it's just all God, he'll just do it. But that's not how it works. We're invited to do it. But that transforming work, that heart transformation, is what the Holy Spirit does in us when we surrender and we create opportunity We allow God to work in our hearts and minds. And so this morning, before we wrap up, what I want to talk about for just a few moments is the emphasis on the fact that we need to pay attention to the kairos moments in our life. The moments when Jesus is saying to us, the time has come. God is at work and he's doing something new now, today, through good life, through his church worldwide, in you as an individual. And there's an opportunity for us to respond, and we can respond by repenting, changing our mind, and then believing and moving towards that thing that God is inviting us to, that new perspective. Do you know, some years ago, we, um, I was a young youth pastor for many years, and we took our, our young people off to a youth camp, and we came from a very, you know, kind of dynamic, energetic, you know, sort of contemporary church, and there's lots of passion, and it was, it was a great, fun place to be. And like lots of people in church, um, I know no one here at Good Life would have ever thought like this, but we had a little bit of bias about our church and our style and the way we do things as kind of being probably close to the very way that God intended for us to do church. And so we turned up to this campsite, and they had a church on the site. So we thought it would be cool, let's go visit the old-fashioned style church on a Sunday morning. Woo! All our young people thought that was cool because they had most of them not been to it. 
and about three quarters of our young people had not actually grown up in church. They'd actually come to our youth group in church through our local schools and just connection we made in the community. So we take them all off and they're all walking in like barefoot, a bit like here, um, barefoot, you know, like bodies on, still a little bit wet from the surf that morning. I'm like, guys. Anyway, there's a few people who've come into the service and the service starts and we're sitting in there and I sat through the service and I just went, oh my goodness. And I sat there analyzing the whole thing going, how could anyone come to a church like this? And I just thought, man, I love our church. We've, we've seriously got it right. Like, we, we know how to put on a church service. After the service, we go back, and one of the young people says, that really impacted me this morning. I was so moved by what happened in that service, and it felt so different to our church. And I went, do you know what? I was thinking the exact same thing. Not. And I had a Kairos moment. I had a Kairos moment. They're not always positive and fun. It was a convicting one, where the Spirit of God opened my eyes to see that I had been judgmental, that I had been arrogant, that I had been self-righteous, and that I looked upon another faith community that does things different to the way we do it, and I made all these assumptions about those people and what they do. And that Kairos moment was an invitation. I didn't have this language at the time, but an invitation for me to change my mindset, to repent and to believe the good news. And you know what meant to repent and believe the good news? It meant I was challenged about my posture and my mindset when I walk into any different space where God's holy presence is amongst His people. And that is that God can speak, God can move, God can be glorified and worshipped, and amazing things can happen in the hearts of people despite whatever style or thing that it is that we're doing. And I think lots of you would probably understand what I'm talking about when I say that. So I want to finish this morning by asking you this question. What are the Kairos moments in your life that are worth reflecting back on? And what would it mean for us to be alert to the time, to the Kairos moments in our life where God wants to get our attention with His declaration for us and ask ourselves the question, what is God saying and what am I going to do in response? Because this is the heart of transformation and what it means to be a disciple or an apprentice of Jesus. Last week... I made a lighthearted, but some of you may have thought it was a bit more than lighthearted, comment about the one-year Bible. And then I found out during the week, which is one of the advantages and disadvantages of being a new pastor at a new church, is that for many years, here at Good Life, you did the chronological Bible. Let's go through the Bible in a year. And then I get up and just say, well, you can put that thing away. Now, lots of people came up and said, thanks so much, that was awesome, I super related to that. Some people came up and went, well, you know, that's been a very helpful thing in my life. So I wanted to clarify something this morning. <laughs> the, Bible, <laughs> the Bible in a year is worth it. Reading the whole Bible in a year is worth it. Only if you set the posture of your practice to be... May I change my mind, God, and hear the voice of your Spirit speak. And may you transform me, because if you make any practice this year the thing, you're just walking up a ladder 
where you may find yourself climbing up the wrong wall. And so my challenge and encouragement to you is this year, whatever practices you apply, whether it's practices, as Dallas Willard says, of abstinence, which is things like solitude or silence, fasting, frugality with finances and, and possessions, or you might say simplicity, whether it's secrecy or it's sacrifice, and he talks about disciplines of engagement like um, study and worship, corporate worship and celebration, service and prayer, fellowship, meeting together with others, confession or submission. If you practice any of these things, allow it to be an opportunity for you to experience the Kairos moments of God in your life, where you can write down in a journal or share with a friend in your life group, God is doing something. The time came. God got my attention. He invited me to repent and to believe the good news. And hopefully in time we'll bear the fruit of the spirit of that in that we'll look more loving. We'll look more kind. People will stop saying you religious hypocrites and they'll stop looking at the church as this group that's trying to tell the rest of the world, like the moral police of the world, how to behave when in fact the community itself is as broken as everybody else. Maybe we just may, rather than announcing that to the world, we may end up looking like people where people come to us and say, how did you learn to be less judgmental and more loving? How did you learn to be a peacemaker? How did you learn to offer grace in the face of, you know, hardship and oppression? I don't want to invite our musicians to come forwards. Recently, Ryan Smith... And I occasionally will go on walks down at Malulaba. And he doesn't know this, but I had a Kairos moment while walking with him. Because they don't always happen just when you're reading a scripture or you're in a prayer time or in a church service. They can happen at any moment if your heart is open and your ears are open to the voice of the Spirit of God speaking through anyone, a child, an adult, a friend, even an enemy. And as we were walking along, we were chatting about a whole bunch of things. And he said this comment, and it went in my heart, and I made a note. Ah, that's something I need to pay attention to. It was a Kairos moment. But the beauty of this Kairos moment is only as good as I'm willing to repent and to believe and to live in the light of that. So I've been practicing that. And it's bringing me freedom, but I actually think it's honoring God and it's blessing other people as I make an adjustment in my heart and my mind to something that he didn't even realize he said where God spoke to me. So I want to invite you this year, would you stand with me this morning, to open your heart and say, God, I don't want this just to be a year where I just rock up to church and I sing the songs and I hear a message that was good or bad, entertaining, not entertaining, informative, not so informative, and just do some rating system on church life for the year. This year can be a year where every small group, every church service, whether it's boring or it's the most dynamic, inspiring, like, whoa, blew me away with the creativity or down to, ah, that was a bit more ordinary today. There is a moment in every moment when if our hearts and our minds are open, 
God can speak and work in us and a Kairos moment may take place. So may you hear the words of the Lord today. Jesus says the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. It's here. It's among us. It's even within us. Repent and believe the good news. Let's pray. Oh, Lord. We don't want a dry and a stuffy faith based on religious practices that seem to oppress or become like a burden. We want to live the Spirit-led, Spirit-filled life you invite us into. Alert to every moment, able to sing in a storm, able to sing on a mountaintop full of joy, able to press in when the music's amazing, able to press in when there's no music, able to sit in a church that's so different to ours, but to hear the Spirit speak through that community. Lord, may we be humbled in your presence. May we hear the word of the Lord as you speak to us this year. And may we repent and believe in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing with all our hearts. And may our posture be to be fully open to what God does to us. Amen.